My name's Doug. Um, about a month ago, Jeremy asked me if I would be willing to speak this Sunday, and I was thrilled to say yes. Uh, I counted a great privilege to, to speak about the reality of our God and the amazing truth of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus for us. And when I think about uh, virtually every song that uh, Noah led, the songs are really about that gospel. It's what the words are all about. And it really is what Paul is fighting for in Galatians. He's fighting for that gospel. And it strikes me when I look at Paul and read what he writes uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul strikes me as a man who understood his audience very well. He knew who he was talking to. He was comfortable speaking to the monotheistic Jewish people, those people who would have grown up in a tradition of acknowledging one God. But Paul was also seems very comfortable talking to those who were immersed in a culture of many gods. Many Greek and Roman gods, there were probably, I don't know, perhaps hundreds of them. And so many people lived in a pretty complicated spiritual world of many gods who had control apparently over various things, various aspects of nature, various aspects of life itself. And for Paul, he saw the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news to both those camps. And I wonder at times uh, how well we know, how well we understand the culture in which we live. And I think it's a very complicated, uh, perhaps confusing, and maybe confused culture. And I think it's a challenge for the church to effectively speak into that culture. It's not an easy task. There's a group, an organization, actually, in the United States. It's called the Pew, P-E-W, Research Center. And they collect data on an ongoing basis to try to gauge the pulse of various things. This is primarily in the United States. But one of the things they try to get a grip on or a feel for is where is faith, where is religion, where is church today for most people? And it's interesting that the fastest growing group is a group that they call the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Fastest growing group, especially of young people in the United States, and I think it would be even more so in Canada, identify as having no religious affiliation 
at all. And in that camp, you might have those who would identify as atheists, who say, well, God simply does not exist. In that camp, you would have those who might be more agnostic, those who might say, well, don't know if God exists. Perhaps you can't even know it's something beyond. And then there are those who simply say they believe in nothing in particular. And I would say that if that speaks for the United States, it probably speaks even more so for Canada. Uh, I would say we are a more overtly secular culture. But there are also uh, those in our culture who would view spirituality uh, not so much in terms of uh, church or religion, but they would view spirituality as an inner quest. That spirituality is something that requires you to take a look inside yourself. Um, it's interesting on the um, kind of the community bulletin board that they have in Starbucks. They probably have it in many other places, but that's a place I tend to frequent. It's amazing how many workshops are offered, especially in January where people want to get a new start on life, about wellness, about mindfulness, about meditation, about yoga, uh, about various, I'll say, practices, most of which ask you to look within. And I jotted down some of what these workshops promise to do. Well, maybe promise is a bit harsh, but the one was called, the workshop was called, Your Power is Yours to Choose. And the workshop offered, drop bad habits for good. Program your mind for deep focus. Elevate your productivity. Up-level, I never heard that word before. Up-level your health and mindset. Make it easy to achieve your goals. And there were others. There were others on that bulletin board. Um, and really, I see those, many of those workshops, and I'm not saying they have nothing of value to offer. But their message really is that the answer to your biggest issues is something you need to look inside and figure out. And you may say, well, those aren't really spiritual things. But I believe they are. Uh, because the language within sort of that context is about, and I heard this this week, about tapping into your spiritual GPS. Or sort of training your spiritual inner core. So that there is a spiritualism about all those things that are directing you to look for answers within yourself. So it's 2020, it's a new decade, it's a new year. 
And many of these things, I think, hold out the potential of maybe it can be a new you. I would say this whole area of self-help, spirituality, is huge business. Has dollar signs written all over it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the TV on, and there was, uh, I don't know if it was an advertisement, maybe it was just a clip, uh, a tour that Oprah is embarking on. You've maybe seen it or heard of it. If you watch her, I don't know, I don't. But it's called Vision 2020. Your life in focus. And as she moves, I think, through about nine different cities in the United States, headlined by special guests like Tina Fey, Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, and others, they are really proclaiming a very similar message to what sits on the Starbucks wall. And it strikes me that there are always people, promoters, willing to sort of capitalize on people's sense of disenchantment either with who they are or where they are in life. And so you can go and see Oprah for anywhere from about 100 bucks to 400 bucks. And this is the message that it'll be. And you say, what has any of that to do with Galatians? I think it all does. About three weeks ago, shortly after Jeremy talked to me and asked if I would speak, I went to that place. There's a new one right by London Drugs, Starbucks. It's a very nice one. I walked in. I had my laptop. I had a pen and paper. And I was just going to sit there and do some thinking, kind of prepare a little bit for this Sunday. And I got my coffee. And I looked around and realized that there was very little room. But there was one seat close to a window was a tiny little table, but it was all I needed. Um, so I got my coffee, and as I was walking to the seat, I noticed that there was a woman sitting in the small little table just in front of the one I was headed to, and I knew her. So as I walked there, I simply said hi to her. I said, Happy New Year. Um, don't know what else I might have said. And then I sat down and began to read Galatians. Galatians 3. And Paul's conversation to Jewish people who had a tradition, a history of religion. And Paul speaking to those people about the freedom that the gospel of Jesus has in comparison to the form of religion that they have been kind of following or used to. And so my mind was at that place, and I have to just thank God for at times how he orchestrates ordinary things in life in a way that uh, 
at times it is so amazing that I just say, God, thank you that occasionally you do that. Because about 20 minutes as I, after sitting at this table, the woman sitting at that little table turned around and said to me, Doug, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. So I moved over closer and we chatted probably for the next 10 or 15 minutes. And here's what she wanted to talk about. Her daughter had online become, um, I guess, involved with a Jewish community. Uh, people who would say that they are devout Jews, those who follow the Old Testament and all the rituals and festivals. And she said, my daughter is converting to Judaism. And I was thankful that God had given me 15 or 20 minutes to get my head in exactly that place and to talk to her about the contrast between what the gospel of freedom in Jesus offers and what formal religion in many different varieties has to offer. And so we talked about it for a while. I don't think I didn't solve any of her, her issues. I didn't necessarily solve the pain that she was feeling. But it struck me that even today, there are those people willing to adopt a form of religion. A form of religion where things are pretty clearly laid out for you. This is what you need to do. This is what we would expect. And it stands in such contrast to the free gift that is ours in Jesus. And so when I think about all that, I think about, you know, whether it's the nuns, those who say we don't have any religious affiliation, whether it's those who spend their time trying to look within to find what they're missing, or whether it's those who say, you know what, I, I'm jumping into something that is formal, that tells me what to do, tells me what I need to do. All those groups, to them, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ provides something completely different. Refreshing and life-giving. And that's what Paul talks about. This offer of what I'm simply going to say, it's an offer of freedom, freely given. I'm going to leave this little sentence up on the screen. I think it speaks to, to what I'm going to say today. And I'm going to say, it is not necessarily easy to walk by faith and not by sight. That it is this freedom within the Christian message, which I think we need to hang on to. Because at the same time that there's this freedom in Christ, this freedom is also challenging. It's challenging to walk by faith. When I think about Galatians and... Uh, I'm really uh, talking mostly in terms of Galatians 3 from about 20 from verses 21 to 29. And I'm going to read that at the end. 
But the first three or four chapters of Galatians remind me of a few, more than a few essays I would have written in university. That the prof would have given an assignment and the assignment generally came with somewhat of a mandated number of words. So a 2,500-word essay or a 1,500-word essay. And so I would begin writing. And I would get about halfway through, do a rough estimate about, okay, how many words have I probably slapped on this paper? And realize that I was only about halfway through to that finish line, but I was out of ideas. So, you know, then I do what all good university students, they go back and they start saying the same thing over again in slightly different language or maybe use slightly different illustrations. And it strikes me that when I read Galatians 1, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, he's talking about the same thing, just in slightly different ways or slightly different language. And I'm going to confess up front that what I say will probably sound very similar to what Jeremy's already said. It'll sound very similar to what Chris said last week, but I am not going to be apologetic about that. I will confess it up front. That if Paul felt it necessary to sort of revisit this in several different ways, maybe it's okay for us to do the same. And maybe to some extent it, it speaks about Paul's passion for what it meant to follow Jesus. And his to de desire to protect what I will call this wide open spiritual door from those people who want to put barriers in front of it. You might say Paul was protecting what made the good news of the gospel good news. It's interesting, Paul was raised, he was educated, and probably employed within a strict religious Jewish system. There were certainly boundaries and expectations and rules that need to be followed, and it would have defined his life, and Paul was all in, like he was devoted to all those things. Until Jesus revealed himself to Paul in a way that was miraculous, in a way that was undeniable, and Paul's spiritual eyes personally changed, but so did his view of the spiritual world around him and his view of the people around him. And for Paul, it wasn't that now he need to tweak what he used to believe. It was about embracing something brand new. What it meant to live with new spiritual life through Jesus. Empowered not by diligent law-keeping, but empowered by the presence, the breath, the life of God. And so in Galatians, as, as new Christians were sort of, not sort of, new Christians were pressured to add other things to the gospel of Jesus 
Paul says, absolutely no. And this letter, I would say, stands out as a vigorous defense of the good news of simple faith, trust, belief in the reality of God, the reality of Jesus, the reality of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, Galatians has sometimes been referred to as the Christian's charter of freedom. I kind of like that. And to me, if you look at the life of Paul, it was interesting. The old system that he grew up in and was fanatical about was something he was willing to kill for. His faith in the gospel of Jesus was something he was willing to die for. Such a transformation in this man. And so this morning, I just want to highlight again a few of Paul's arguments, I'll say, for the gospel. And secondly, I want us to just, in a new way, be amazed at the freedom that is ours through the gospel of Jesus. And I made this little chart that I thought it might help clarify sort of different ways and different language that Paul seems to use in Galatians to talk and to contrast sort of the old, you might say the world in which he spent most of his life, and the new represented by the gospel of Jesus. And so he has conversations about flesh and spirit. And really, I think another way of saying that is flesh refers to human effort, like work at it. Spirit refers to the initiation of God and the breath of God in our life. Old covenant, old covenant versus new covenant. I'm not going to speak too much about that, but there's lots of conversation about Abraham in Galatians. And the Jewish people would have held up Abraham as a great hero of their faith and even of everything they believed. And they might say, well, Abraham was a law keeper. And Paul says, well, actually, Abraham was given a promise long before the law was even given. And Abraham was okay with God, not because he was a good rule keeper, but because Abraham had faith in God. So we have this conversation about law keeping versus freedom, about a form of religion in which uh, Paul would have been steeped versus faith in Jesus, sort of righteous effort versus a righteousness of faith. And that's probably more those three that have little stars on probably are more uh, kind of my emphasis this morning. The left-hand side, and, and you know, this, these are words I put down there so you can take them with a grain of salt. To some extent, to live on the left-hand side of this screen, there is a sense of self-sufficiency sort of built into it. 
that, okay, it's like, okay, tell me what to do. I think I can do it. The right-hand side is an admission of our need. You can live on the left-hand side and live a pretty dogmatic life and tell people, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you shouldn't be doing this. The life in Jesus is a life that calls us to humility. Our sense of need should cause us to be humble people. And PBA, <laughs> I cannot take credit for the PBA. I happen to hear somebody use that, and I thought, wow, that's an interesting way to describe these, the left and the right. And at first, when the person said it, I had no idea what it meant, but I was curious. He said the left, you might refer to as performance-based acceptance. The right, he said, is promise-based acceptance. The left-hand side is about what you can do to make sure that you are okay, somehow hoping you're okay with God. Chris talked about what that kind of a life can deteriorate to when he talked last week about the old colony Mennonites in South America. It's horrible. The right-hand side is accepting a promise God gave to this man, Abraham, saying at some point, Your seed is going to be blessed. It's going to cross all barriers. And people will be accepted and come before God and know him as father. So you might say we are those people who are living that promise that God gave to Abraham. So Paul is essentially arguing against all those things on the left and arguing for all those things on the right. For Paul, everything on the left meant turning away from the gospel and in a very real sense, turning your back on Jesus. Built into the left-hand mindset is the sense that, okay, just tell me what to do. I think I can do that, and hopefully that's good enough. To opt to live on the left meant returning to, and it's interesting, Paul uses this language, to a form of bondage. Because if you attempt to keep the law, the law is a very harsh tutor. Even if you think you're keeping most of it, the law will let you know real quickly that you're not keeping all of it. For Paul, the righteousness of the right. It's not a political statement. It just has to do with the right-hand side of the screen. The righteousness of the right meant freedom. Because it has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The man of whom even the rulers and judges of the day could only say when they hauled Jesus in front of the courts of law, they said, we find no fault in him. 
And so Paul in Galatians, and again in Galatians 3, I think is asking the question, how do you want to live? Do you want to live according to a form of religion? And there are many of those forms out there. Last Sunday, there was a form of that religion meeting in the community gym. There's a form of that or religion meeting across the road from us. There are different forms of religion all over the place. And Paul says, do you want to live like that? Or do you want to live on the right-hand side of this screen? To live by faith, guided by what I'm simply going to call the spiritual fresh air and breath of God. Righteousness is a, I would call righteousness sort of a biblical big idea. And it's interesting that um, what I was talking about at the beginning, those who sort of look to uh, wellness, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, all of that, it's interesting how righteousness is not even in the equation in that understanding of life. But you cannot read the Bible without sort of bumping into this big idea of righteousness. And it's often a word used in conjunction with the law. Kind of like, well, if you keep the law, then you're righteous. And yes, uh, you know, I think even the Bible would agree that there is a righteousness of human effort. And most religious systems of the world are built or predicated on your willingness to put in the necessary effort. Most of them will be very clear. Here are the rules we adhere to. Here are the special days that we follow. These are the rituals we practice. Here are the prayers or the sacrifices that we would expect you to make. Here are the dietary or dress restrictions that we have. And many people are willing to put their faith I'm going to say not in a loving, forgiving God. They're putting their faith in that dogma. They're putting their faith in their ability to sort of abide by those rules. And there are people who, even spiritually speaking, simply want to be told, or they ask the question, please just tell me what I need to do. And there are many religious voices willing to do the telling. And this is precisely what Paul is fighting against in Galatians. The biblical concept of righteousness goes far beyond what it means to be a good person. And it's not that honorable living is not of great value. I'll tell you, if 95% of Canadians were honorable living citizens, this country would be astounding. So honorable living, even of human effort, has value. 
But the Bible speaks of a true righteousness that is beyond our ability to perform. We cannot attain it. And to hold up my best effort somehow as being righteous enough is kind of like me holding this up and telling you that it is white as snow. And I looked at this, I actually found this in the kitchen this morning. I had a different rag I brought from home. And then I looked at this and I thought, well, this is overkill. You should have a white one with a few spots on it. And then I said, no. Our righteousness is like me trying to convince you that this is white. And the Bible would say, Doug, you might want to put that righteousness away. Paul says, you know, law very often has the positive impact of sort of helping to steer people in the right direction. We have many laws within our society that help steer us in the right direction. But Paul says that same law also stands in front of us as an accuser saying, you're not good enough. Your righteousness is flawed. And we know it. Like nobody really has to tell us. Our righteousness is deeply flawed. And it's in that context that the gospel of Jesus Christ stands out like a bright light on the hill. Offering not a righteousness somehow of human effort, but a righteousness freely given. It is literally Jesus saying, give me that rag and put on this cloak of righteousness that I give to you. I have given it to you in order that you, and as Paul ends Galatians 29, it's really about this, whoever you are, wherever you came from, you can become children of the true living God. And you can call him and relate to him as father. Paul says the truly righteous are simply those who are willing to live by faith alone. Those willing to worship God, not in some temple, not in something created with human hands, but those willing to worship in spirit and in truth. Those whose heart simply is open and soft towards God. Those who humbly acknowledge that apart from Jesus, my own righteousness will always be compromised in a significant way. Now, we have nothing to boast about. And Paul makes that comment. He says, I have nothing to boast about. He says, all I can boast about is in the cross of Jesus. A righteousness that is ours. That Jesus has imparted to us. 
And every day, I was thinking about this, and I need to do this every day. We need to take this. And we need to put it there. And be overwhelmed by that which Jesus has done for us. Paul says the true purpose, the true value of the law is to point us to the only one who was able to keep it. There's a purpose of the law, the value of the law is to point us to Jesus. To put your faith and trust in him. Let him be your righteousness. And then let him guide your steps. And in humility seek to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that is ours in Jesus. I want to read... uh, Galatians 3, verses 21 to 29. I did have it on a slide, but then I realized that the information I gave to the person who makes the slide um, looked very odd, to say the least. I had done some cutting and pasting as I was working, and I hadn't sort of looked closely at what I had done when I had cut and pasted, and it made no sense. So I'm simply going to read it. Um, And it's from the New Living Translation, which I kind of like to use, uh, because sometimes, even though we've read these things many times, sometimes in a a different translation, all of a sudden it's like, ooh, didn't notice that. Is there a conflict, then, between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life we could be made right with God by obeying it but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ before the way of faith in Christ was available to us we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. And then Paul says, well, let me put it another way. And it's interesting, it would have been interesting to to see and watch Paul as the Spirit of God is asking him to write these things down. He says, well, let me see, let's put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And then I love the next two lines. Well, I like all of it, but the next two especially. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. We no longer need the law as our guardian. That's an incredible statement. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And in this kingdom of God, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. When I spoke earlier about God, uh, Paul's personal eyes being open to the reality of Jesus, his worldview, his how he saw people around him in this Roman culture also changed. No longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. And that goes back to a conversation he's had about those who would say, well, Abraham was a law keeper. Paul would say, no, Abraham was a man of faith. And you are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. But I'm going to end with, um, I'll call it a, a picture or an image uh, that God gave me, I will say, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's one that sort of I like to think about in my head. And maybe it'll be a picture or an image that um, will also help, help you understand the amazing gift we have. And this picture was, was that of a sandbox. That there is a form of religion that invites you into a sandbox. And there are many forms of religion, all with their own sandbox. All of those sandboxes have well-defined borders. Things that you need to do in order to be acceptable in the sandbox. Those borders are made by human hands. And when I think about Paul and Galatians and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not an invitation to step into a sandbox. For me, it's an invitation to come and walk on the beach. That there is this life of freedom offered to us through Jesus Christ And it's an invitation by God to say, come and walk on the beach. Beach is God's hands. And it's not necessarily that the beach is easy. It's not necessarily that the beach doesn't have its struggles and its storms. But there's freedom on the beach. And God will walk with you there. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the truth of of this gospel of Jesus. Father, may we truly understand how marvelous and great it is 
And Father, we thank you for the words of Paul that are so strong in his desire to protect this gospel of freedom. So we thank you for it again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.